Hey, Dennis, how are you doing today? We've had a, a busy week of tennis, some exciting winners and some news that you just told me before we started recording, which I'm, I'm keen to discuss here. Uh, there's been some, some action on the tennis tour, despite it being after Grand Slam season. Yeah, hi everyone. Funnily enough, this week, I mean last week, was uh, was this 250s, but we, we talked about it that both 250s in uh, Gijon and uh, Florence were both uh, like really high quality and um, and actually even the finals and everything. I haven't watched one minute of it. I've just seen like Domi crushing it. He lost in the semis to Rublev. And obviously, you know, the two two winners are not really surprising although when when you see Felix winning a final you're always really happy that finally he's not just losing finals he he can actually uh, just close out matches and we will talk about the ATP cup but definitely the ATP cup and that they won it it was was something of a massive change for Felix because we we talked about it they, the, the guy is is absolutely brilliant you know he has everything like he has a massive serve he has a great backhand you know his his forehand is when it's on when it's on point it's smoking. So yeah, um, quite quite a bit happened and, and we'll just uh, try to cover everything. By the way, we've, we've got uh, a lot of positive feedbacks for last week's episode and uh, we do thank everyone for listening. Yeah, so Felix and Rublev, uh, if I, I've actually watched a bit of Gijon. I saw some of Murray's uh, matches, not all matches, but, but tidbits here and there. Uh, I saw Rublev, I saw a funny interview with Rublev talking about Dominic Team where they asked him, who is your favorite player? And he uh, said that he's a player with, with a worse English accent than he has. And he meant team. So it was a funny thing to say. Rublev has a pretty good sense of humor. And also interesting that his favorite player is Dominic Team. I don't know how serious that was, but it sounded pretty serious. But both players like to um, to murder the tennis ball. And uh, I think that's maybe something that they, they share and that they respect in each other. And I think it's great to see Rublev winning a bit. I thought he had a bit of a cold period uh, and he, uh, he does struggle to uh, close out matches against the best players in the world because he's a little bit two-dimensional. So it's nice when he when he wins. I like watching him. He seems like a nice guy and and all solid and, and nice to see Domi back in action actually being a threat on the ATP tour. So uh, a positive I think week in, in Gijon. I did not see as much of the one in uh, Florence, uh, but but yeah, like you say, Felix when he catches on and he's playing well, he, he can beat anyone, and he has the game for it. And I think you put it well when you said that he really had some kind of uh, you know out of body experience when he won the ATP Cup because that really unlocked his potential a lot more, and he felt more confident. And now he actually wins these matches that he couldn't do before. So uh, interesting week. Uh, but maybe we should get into what you told me before. So what's all happening with the ATP Cup? Okay, so um, first I'm going to talk about the uh, what is happening with the ATP Cup and the new uh, Hopman Cup, which will be called something else. So the ATP Cup was an interesting one because obviously we couldn't really place it. We talked about it in one of the uh, previous episodes that it was quite hard to follow and we didn't really know what it was all about. Uh, the first um, inaugural one was great, and and you know that there, there was Rafa and Yoko in the final, which which went. I mean, that, that was a fantastic uh, quality uh, ATP Cup. Like everyone was there. Like Medvedev was was smoking, and and uh, you know uh, Rafa and uh, and I remember Bautistagu was the was the other one uh, in the uh, Spanish team, and they were just absolutely crushing everyone. And Djokovic was was like you know as he is usually for Serbia, 
he was he was like he caught fire and he was absolutely amazing and he just crushed Nadal in the finals. He wasn't like you know an out and out uh, crushing, but he was he was a really really dominant display. What they said, and I think they sort of felt what we talked about is that both are a little bit sort of weightless, so there's not a lot going on, and and we don't really know what's going on with the Davis Cup. Or we don't really know what's what's going on with the ATP Cup, and you know it's it's both both are pretty much the same thing. So it's like, why do you have two of the same things? And then then you have obviously the Laver Cup, which is also like a team championship. So it, there was there was a bit too much going on, and I think why they wanted to change it is that they sort of said that yeah, let's focus on the Davis Cup, and now the ATP schedule is changing. Although when I say this, uh, they haven't really played tournaments when the Davis Cup um, rounds of like quarters and semis and finals were on, but they're going to change the whole um, structure next year. Um, they're going to get rid of the ATP Cup. Instead, there's going to be this new Hop Hopman Cup in like several Australian cities. And um, it's going to be a proper sort of mixed one. So there's going to be a, a men's uh, singles, a women's singles, and a mixed doubles. So it, it, it will be good fun. Although I, I never actually thought about the Hoffman Cup as anything else than an exhibition. <laughs> Even when Better won it. And, um, and they played a brilliant final against Zverev and Kerber. Um, that was the last. Uh, of the Hopman Cups, and but you know it, it's it's a nice one, and and obviously the guys are are you know playing fairly high competitive matches, and and the girls the same, and and the mixed doubles. What I wanted to say about Rublev and Domi, and and what just just wanted to basically reply on on what you've been saying. So I'm happy for Rublev, and last year or the year before when he was literally winning every 500 ATP 500s, what there was like he. He had this ridiculous run of like seven ATP 500s he won in a row, or maybe that was five, but there was, there was so many, it was, it was really hard to follow. And he seemed absolutely unbeatable on the 500 stages. And you were like, okay, so this kid is going to be a proper factor in, in, the, in the Masters, and he's going to be a proper factor in, in the Grand Slams. And he somehow never could manage. Two weaknesses. One is obviously we talked about the volleys last time. So he's not really volleying, although his technique is pretty brilliant when he comes in. So it's 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 actually quite good how he touches the ball. He just doesn't so he just trusts his forehand a lot more than to come to the net. And the other thing, his second serve is one of the worst on tour. So that is his first serve is good. It's it's really powerful. Uh, but his second serve is like 85 miles per hour, and which is, you know, which translates to like 140, 150 sort of K, which is just too slow for the men's game. And over three sets or a best of five sets format, I think it can be just like utilized. And, and you know, these, the best guys who are on tour, they can just put it on places where he's going to get broken just once, you know, or he's going to be broken in like a mini break in the tie breaks. And then he's just like, you know, two sets to love down. And then he loses his faith and, and he has some mental issues on a tennis court. He's, he's the sort of Stefan uh, Russian rather than the, uh, I don't even know, like Kuznetsov or, or, you know, these guys, Kefalnikov, who is like as cool as a cucumber on, on a tennis court. So, but Medvedev, and uh, and Rublev are like really pretty intense on court, 
and uh, for example, uh, Hachinov isn't. Hachinov is, is, you know, he just gets on with his things and, and he just wins tennis matches and, and he's a great player. Although when we talk about it, he's obviously quite extreme. At least his forehand is and his serve is pretty weird. I'm really happy to see that Domi got to the semifinals. Uh, I love his accent. I think it's really funny. When we talk about the worst accents, I think like uh, Carlos and Rafa still pretty much edges them but there's there's the Italians as well but you know how it is so you know they, they speak all of them speak great English um, compared to uh, to what it was like you know um, I don't know 20 years ago you couldn't actually do uh, interviews with with like Spanish and, and Italian guys because they couldn't speak English it was great to see these tournaments and uh, as we talked about it's, it's great for the ATP as well that they are doing these um these new cities and you know you you have new crowds they had great great draws rublev he beat corda in the final yeah and it was really good to see corda as well in a final and uh felix played wolf which was also pretty good to see i was i was really happy for jj wolf and um and it's it's just great to see that he's he's coming along and and i sort of predict a pretty good year for jj wolf next year yeah, he's definitely a very talented guy. I mean, you notice him because he had a, used to have a mullet, but now he's uh, he's also shown his his very um, you know athletic ability and his style. Quite interesting with with a pretty flat forehand, where his his take back is a, is a bit old school in a way. Interesting guy to watch, very dynamic uh, and uh, and fun. So there's definitely new guys coming. So next year will be will be very exciting to to watch in, in tennis, I think. And and some old guys definitely still there, like Rublev. Not being old, but he's, he's, been, he's been around. What's uh, Wolf's racket? Do you know? Is it eighteen twenty? I think it's a speed pro of some kind, but I'm not hundred percent sure. He's using a speed. So he has speed. to be eighteen twenty, yeah, because uh, that that would be mine as well. Because he hits, as you say, he hits so flat that you know he's just like he needs an eighteen twenty to control the ball, and that's that's the funny part about Rublev as well is that for his game, you would somehow think that he might be better off with 16 19 but he loves uh, the gravity so you know when when he got it from Zverev he, he just absolutely loved it and and he was between rackets back then I remember that he was playing with with the uh, uh, pro staff 95s I believe yeah. and then uh, then he just you know he just picked this up got the blacked out frame and he was like uh, he was he was one of the most famous guys who, who was playing literally half a year with a blacked out frame tied and, to the Wilson contract there yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was like, I'm not going to play with a Wilson anymore. I'm just going to use these gravities. And and I think it helped his game a lot. Yeah, it did for sure. And uh, I mean, it, it works well for him, heavy swing weight and everything. So yeah, it's quite uh, quite a beast to swing. But he, he's the guy who has this natural whip in his stroke. So it, it works really well for him. But yeah, the, the Wolf racket is an 1820. So it's a speed pro of some kind. Then you don't know which version it is. I'm not sure. The, uh, the other thing what, what I just wanted to say is about obviously Felix. So it's, it's great that he, uh, he's now winning finals. Now, obviously, he has two under his belt. One is Rotterdam, which was uh, 500 uh, in the beginning of the year. And it seems like somehow indoors, indoor hard works for his game better. What I can think about is possibly that the balls don't really bounce that high. And I think that actually benefits his forehand because his forehand, as we talked about, is this absolutely extreme Eastern grip, which uh, which makes it really, really, and, and a lot of wrist action. 
And with that in mind, it's, it's pretty tough to, um, to just control the ball. And I think that might be the case that obviously when you're playing indoors, it's a lot easier, you know, where the ball is bouncing, you don't get any sort of uh, wind or, you know, you don't get all these weird conditions. So that, that is, that is the case, I think, uh, with, with Felix. Because if you look at his serve, it's one of the biggest on tour when it's on song. Yeah. But I remember when he started, he had like matches where he had like 15 to 20 doubles. He, he was it was quite loose there for a while and, and very shaky. And, and you still see some shakiness in some strokes. Like when he's approaching, he can shank uh, forehands and backhands, especially the backhand. I think when he's pressured, he shanks quite a bit because his racketed speed is so massive as well. So he, he tries to rip the ball all at all times. And then obviously you're going to have some some shanks. If you look at a guy like Murray, who's kind of at the under end of the scale, who hits with a heavy, heavy swing weight, but it's much less racketed speed. He, he swings the racket slower and obviously pretty much never shanks the ball. Yeah, he's very clean on, the, on contact. So they have quite a different style of play. But, but a fun guy to watch, Felix, is um, he's an interesting player. And, and uh, I remember seeing him 2019 at the Mercedes Cup as it was called back then on the grass and he was just spectacular to watch you know how he was uh, you know pummeling the ball and hitting winners left right center it was just very very impressive so uh, so a fun guy yeah absolutely yeah absolutely in the meantime i, I just uh, looked it up it, it might it will be possibly called united cup uh, for the new Hoffman Cup. Mm-hmm. The most interesting uh, factor about it is that they apparently will give uh, ranking points to oh. the players. I don't know how that will work, but that is um, pretty interesting. And also, apparently, Tennis Australia were, will uh, try to get $50 million as, um, as the prize money. So that is, that is massive. Yeah, I think I, I've heard on some, I mean, some pundits have really been asking for a mixed event of some kind to bring the the boys and the girls together and, and play kind of a serious tournament. I mean, obviously, like you said, Hoff, Hoffman Cup was a warm-up exhibition for the the Grand Slam, first Grand Slam of the year. So this one is maybe like a Hoffman Cup reinvented, but with more serious stakes which might be interesting and, and, a, and a good try and something a bit different because the ATP Cup and then the Davis Cup and, and you were a bit unsure with the Labor Cup, all these, what roles they all play and what is more exhibition than others, what is a warm-up, what is not a warm-up. So I think it may, might make sense. It does look a bit weird that they shut down a tournament so quickly, but you know, it, it's they have to adapt to the times, I guess. I think this, this might actually be pretty good because I think... Uh... You know, this will be on the same time frame as what, where the award, the same sort of schedule in, in the calendar where uh, the Hopman Cup was. If they take it more seriously, then then everyone wins with it. Because, you know, it, obviously, uh, when when we remember the last match which happened on, on the Hopman Cup, um, it was a legendary um, mixed doubles. Uh, between, as I said, you know, Federer was with Bencic and, and Zverev was with uh, Kerber. And, you know, we are talking about four brilliant tennis players. So it doesn't matter uh, how it was played. It was played properly. It was, it was a good match. So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's great. And, um, and the other thing is w- which, which just sort of uh, came to my mind about these two new uh, 250s is that two one-handed backhands were in the semis, which I'm so happy because I, I hit a one-handed. But you, you do most of your, your stuff with a one, one-handed. You can hit a two-handed backhand, but you're... Originally one-handed, aren't you? 
Yeah, it's 90% one-handed, I would say. <laughs> when I have to pick up a low balls, <laughs> I, I do a two-hander sometimes. But it's, it's yeah, they're both bad, but the one-handed is less bad. <laughs> my my two-handed is, is not even worth mentioning, so <laughs> I don't even know how to hit it. I mean, I don't even know how to hit a one-handed backhand, to be fair, but it is what it is. Back to more, a bit, bit better sort of topics than our backhands. When, when I say that one-handed backhands have a sort of rebirth or I didn't even know. So when Nadal started to to take Federer's one-handed backhand apart, everyone was like, okay, so one-handed backhand is dead. You're not going to see any one-handed backhand on tour from here on end because it's just not sustainable. And look, when, when Vavrinka literally made the best backhand on tour as a one-handed backhand and when when you look at Musetti, he's absolutely ridiculous, and he he can hit an inside out backhand, and that's the same for Domi. And there was there was this amazing uh, highlight reel of of Domi against uh, Souza, and then he played someone else. Uh, he won both matches, and he was smoking his backhands. So you know, it, it it is now a weapon. Obviously, for certain shots, like for example, you can see it on Tsitsipas that his uh, his block returns are still not really good and that is why he couldn't I think that's that's not just my opinion but one of my opinions as well is that I think Tsitsipas couldn't actually get from from a really good top five player to a world number one was because he doesn't have a blocked return he's actually working on it but it's still not perfect so I think that my because if you look at Federer he was so effortless with his with his blocked returns yeah, and it's an underestimated shot, like to be able to uh, block a return back and with good depth. I think it's uh, something that uh, you need to learn, especially on all levels. Really, it helps a lot to return the ball, you know, with some consistency. But yeah, the one-handed backhand, I think, is is the stroke that most people want to hit. But it's such a difficult shot, and I, I mean, I talk to players uh, everywhere when I go to these ITFs now, and and uh, you meet players of all levels, but I mean, decent club level players and, and everybody seems to struggle pretty much with, with the, the backhand. I mean, whether it's a one hand or two hander, occasionally you see a guy who's mastered the, the backhand, uh, but it's quite rare, you know, and uh, it's, it's a stroke that is very difficult to execute because it requires different timing and different footwork compared to the forehand, which is, a, feels more I, natural to most. Yeah. Players, yeah, you're right. Um, what I can say is that if, if you started playing from a really young age, you obviously, you, you have these in your muscle memories, even when they're not like working that well, you can sort of come up with a shot. But you know, for me, playing for 33 years now, I still sometimes I, I wake up and I don't even know where to hit a, a, my backhand. But mm. my yips are a lot better with my forehand. I don't actually think about what I should be doing with this ball. Um, I just went back to my beast and and now I'm I'm just uh, smoking my forehand. So I'm pretty happy with that. The backhand is a really tricky one. It's um it, it, it's such a technical shot. I think it's a lot easier for girls in general or women, sorry, because they can obviously put a lot more of the left hand into the swing. But for men, it is kind of unnatural to to go in front of your body and not really hit with an open stance but the original topic is obviously uh you know it, it's just great to see that it's still there it's still in the top 10 um and it and it doesn't seem that it's going to go away like Musetti is is a great example for that he is just unbelievable how he how he can control that shot 
And when he's on song, he definitely has a top 10 game. He's now inching ever closer, but I think there's still a few years before he can actually break into the, to the scene like that well. I think Federer kind of brought the backhand to the forefront and then people hit it differently. I mean, Varinka obviously as well, they're quite similar ages, not too far away. But now you have guys that are exciting that people like to watch. Shapovalov, Musetti you mentioned, and Wawrinka still still pummeling away. I mean, Dimitrov has a beautiful one-handed backhand. It's not maybe as much of a weapon, but he can hit it as hard as anyone when he's, he's on his game. So it's, it's the stroke that is the most visually appealing, and I think people want to play it. But it's also uh, a stroke that, that can break down much more easily because it is, requires a lot more from the player generally. And, and often I, I would look at a very solid double-handed back and I was, I was hitting and playing some doubles with uh, two, eight, 180p 600 and 180p 500 the other day. And uh, yeah, it's just nuts what they can do with the double-hander. It, it's just so consistent and solid and the pace is, is insane. So uh, then it looks like it, it's so much easier to have it from when you were, you were a kid than to start like working with the, with the one-hander, which is a more of a typical stroke when you get to tennis late, you know, I would say. And, and the other thing is, is, one is the backhand, which I think is, is really, really the hardest shot. The other thing is the serve, because you don't really have anything to work with. So you have to generate your own pace. And yeah. um, we, we talked about it, that the amateurs usually do struggle with the serve. And that's why you see all those absolutely amazing i'm not gonna say ridiculous <laughs> but amazing serving strokes what you what you just come across with all the different clubs and and even your footages which which obviously i've just seen in the itf you've seen a few serves you, where you were like oh my god how is this working but you know they were great great players but at the end of the day i think who won it you see he seemed like a proper tennis player i don't know if he he was, I, you know, I don't, I don't think he was on, on your footage when, what, what you took, but he seemed like, you know, he can actually hit a ball just from his stance. And you, you sort of know when someone is a good tennis player, because you can just see how they, they, they just appear on the court, not like clothing or anything. You just know how they stand on the court that, yeah, this guy will be good. Yeah. I think it's a, uh, if it looks natural, like it's not forced or, or too complicated, I think then you see that this person has played a lot of tennis whether it's from childhood or, or just like intense playing, you know, so if it looks forced and labored and muscly, I think it's, it's not the best sign generally, but that's true. Yeah. Service is a very complicated stroke with many, many different steps and the most complicated stroke, although it's the one you have control over. So uh, it's, it's weird that you don't see enough club players and, uh, you know, even advanced or intermediate down to lower levels go to the court with a, a bucket of balls and just work on the serves for half an hour because it's it's such an important stroke when you're playing matches and, and doubles and whatever, you know. So it, it's a stroke you can go and practice yourself. So it should be more players out there doing it, I would say. I mean, now with the slinger bag as well, um, it's, it's a lot easier to just get on court. I, I, I just mentioned that any sort of, you know, tennis what's that tennis machine well, you talked about that tennis machine as well which which uh, is coming from slovenia i haven't watched that video to be fair or or listened to the podcast so i do apologize for you Giannis. but Shame on uh, you. I <laughs> but i will do that later but so all jokes aside um yes i remember when i was a kid i literally was just uh, practicing uh, the ball toss and I think that's such a vital thing as well. If, if you look at the best servers, 
like for example, the, a, a lot of a lot of people do talk about Kyrgios's serve is that that that's the best on tour. Although mm. when you look at it, it's not the cleanest um, because if you look at like uh, a lot of well, I can say like Shapovalov on or or like you know you you, you can always say Federer, but I don't want to say Federer because mm. his serve is is the uh, the best ever. But if you look at like Sampras, that they're not moving their feet, uh, you, you look at even Roddick, who had a really weird motion going up. But when he was like standing still, everything else was so, and that's what I say usually to, uh, to guys who ask me about their serve, is that you have to basically just strip it down to the absolute bare minimum and build it up from there. Because if you put anything extra into it, it sort of makes it a lot harder to focus on the end product. I've always felt that the best servers don't really do much on their serve, but then you have Marin Cilic. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, such a weird motion. And he always starts with a, with a foot fault and then he brings his, his uh, forward leg back. So that's, that's also quite weird. I 100% agree with you. Uh, that just take buckets and go up to to a tennis club um, or just just like any sort of public courts and just just practice serves. It's it's the most vital shot in in tennis in a way because you start the point. Even on clay, you need to have a good serve, which is obviously with a lot of spin. That's the other thing. Try a second serve. Just just absolutely try to practice a second serve. Because, yeah, the first serve is great, but if you have a second serve, it can serve as a weapon. I, I wasn't taught a second serve. Uh, it was self-taught for me. It's a weird one because we talked about it many times. I have a big serve, but then I have a pretty tricky second serve as well. So I, I was working on it constantly to reach that level. If um, you know anyone wants to get better in tennis, I think uh, a second serve is vital and a serve is vital. Yeah, exactly. And I think also you have to put in the work. I mean, there's no shortcuts. I mean, tennis is one of those sports that there's no way talent can compensate for everything because there's so many technical parts and each stroke is another technical dimension to enter into. So once you have a good backhand, then that's one stroke, right? And then you have volleys and drop shots and serves and movement and everything else. So it's, it's just like a game that's endless learning. And that's what makes it so exciting and, and fun to, to play. But it's obviously frustrating for a lot of players because you can have a day where, you know, the forehand is is perfect and then the serve is not working, you're double faulting and it could be the opposite of the other way around as well. Like So it's, it's very hard to put all that together and, and play good tennis. That's why you need to hit so many, many balls to, to become a good player in tennis. It's just amazingly difficult as a game, I think. I mentioned that in my, in my farewell letter to, uh, to Roger as well that, you know, not a lot of people actually think how much work he put in his tennis and he yeah. was the one of the one of the hardest workers ever going to a tennis court and if you read one of my favorite books is is open by agassi the two examples what i wanted to say one was agassi that when he actually started to put the the real work in like you know the gym and lifting weights and all that he started to to be absolutely unbeatable apart from Sampras, because obviously Sampras was beating him. But, but obviously Sampras was a, was a great, uh, great player as well. So, you know, Sampras was putting a lot of work in and, and, and that's what you don't really see. And that was the same with like Marty Fish and, and Roddick. Roddick was always the, the, the harder worker out of two. And there's this great documentary on, on Netflix 
which is also a must watch, by the way. That is also, unfortunately, what led to Marty's burnout and, and his uh, psychological problems, that he just became this absolute predator. And that's what made him, you know, a top 10 player. He went to, to the O2, he played unreal, and he wanted to kill everyone. And you need that sort of killer instinct apart from, from putting in the work and all that. Because, you know, if, if you don't do that, you're, you're not going to succeed in tennis. And that, that, is, that is pretty interesting that, you know, Nadal's same, like his kid was born and apparently two days, two days later he was on the practice court and he wanted a, a strong ending of the year. And he might come back. He might he might win the um, the Turin the um, the finals. Um, mm-hmm. I really wish wish him that. To be fair, I mean, I really really wish him that. I don't think he will because he's not really in the form. And like you're you're playing against the apart from him, the seven best players on the planet. I, I really do hope that Nadal can can actually take one of these uh, ATP uh, finals with him before he retires. I think that would be nice. It's one of those typical Nadal stories, like a kid gets born and he's like, I'm going to play more tennis, you know? It's how obsessed <laughs> these guys are with winning and playing tennis. It's just uh, completely nuts. And talking about babies, I mean, we've, we've talked about that briefly before, but it's worth a honorary mention. There were some babies produced. Uh, they were maybe produced in during the Australian <laughs> Open, but they are now out in the world. And that's Guy Monfils and Elina Svitolinas which was a daughter, I think. And then there's also Daniel Medvedev. Both are daughters. I just, I just checked it out and both are actually daughters. So uh, uh, ladies were born in the, in the tennis uh, circuit, tiny little ladies, but it was cute. Uh, both, uh, I mean, I'm obviously following all these guys on, on um, the social media and it was great to see. Daniel's picture is just unreal because it's, it's taken in, in I guess it's in uh, Monte Carlo because uh, yeah. you can just you can just see because I know that he lives there and um, <laughs> it's just brilliant he's in some sort of glass window where like obviously the, the kid is absolutely 100% safe then you can see the the sea in the background so it's a great picture and and you know huge congrats on on uh, these babies because uh, hopefully hopefully these um, these little ladies will be the, uh, the next generation of, of tennis yeah, that's cool. Yeah. It's a great, uh, great addition to to the podcast. This week uh, we have action ongoing or just finishing. Uh, Gasquet beat Pavrinka in the European Open in Antwerp in Belgium. Uh, we had some other interesting results there. Once we we both mentioned before was that Jack Draper completely demolished Jensen Brooksby six one six two. And Brooksby is usually quite happy on a hard court, but here he was trashed by Jack Draper. That's a pretty Impressive results. I'm going to let you comment on that. But first, we have also Stockholm Open in Stockholm, Sweden. Tournament I visited a few times. Uh, Holger Rune is playing. He beat one today. Maxim Cressy is playing. Interesting to watch his serve and volley style on uh, the pretty fast hard courts in Stockholm. And we had Christian Garin also finish his match against Jason Kubler. So um, there's some tennis this week uh, as well, for sure. And the tennis Napoli Cup in Naples in Italy. More Italian tennis tournaments. Thoughts about Draper beating Brooksby? I, I think Draper has a point to prove now because he uh, he just had a minor, in, minor injury. And I think he, he just felt like, okay, so I'm just going to uh, show the world that I'm, I'm back. 
and I have big plans for 2023, which is great. Um, I, I was just checking all the um, all the draws in in the three three different 250s. Uh, obviously, the the Stockholm Open, not obviously, but that looks the strongest. Uh, we've got Tsitsipas as the number one seed. Nori is the number two, but there's Karatsev and there's like uh, Shapovalov. Uh, there's Wolf, Yerzy Lahetska, who we talked about, and mm-hmm. he's going to play Dimitrov, which will be a pretty interesting one. Then we have Leo Borg, who got the wild cards. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, the great Bjorn Borg's son. That must be absolutely unreal to have that package on your back, right? So you you just have to be... <laughs> Look, your dad is literally one of the best players ever to touch a tennis racket. And I think like Bjorn Borg, if he would have still felt like he needed to do more he could have done 16 18 slams no one knows if he hasn't retired that young age yeah uh, so bless him i i do feel for leo borg it must be hell of a burden to play being the son of bjorn borg so that's but and he's starting starting against tommy paul so that is that is one one tough task there's the the antwerp one what we talked about uh, it's quite interesting that dan evans beat greek spore fun right who we talked about many times love the one-handed backhand and he plays one-handed backhand with uh with an e-zone i think he has yeah um is uh, fairly interesting and um, then we have, um, you know, quite a few nice, nice players. The Naples one seems not the strongest, let's put it that way. I think uh, there's quite a few nice players like Carreño Busta is the number one seed and uh, Bertini is the number two seed. And uh, we've got Fuchovic playing there against Zheng, who's um, a Chinese qualifier. And then he might face uh, either Baez or Sonago. So that will be quite a tough task, but you know that is sort of a tournament which, which would be a pretty good gap back for like Fuchovic if he can make a, a like a deep run. Uh, but there's obviously quite a few good Italian players. So Fagnini, um, literally almost every draw or every every pairing has an Italian. We've got Fagnini, Nardi, Caboli, uh, Musetti. Uh, then we have Sonego, Passaro. And we have Berrettini. So it's it's really hard to count the Italian players. And we talked about the Italian players in the last episode. And and that is just it just it just makes makes sense to to have that many um that many uh, amazing players in in your um Naples draw. This also shows the Italian tennis uh, domination that we talked about in the previous episode, that they can have an ATP tournament and they can almost fill it with local talent, and it's still like quite strong. Obviously, not maybe as strong as the the Stockholm Open in this case, but but it's it's a strong tournament for having so many local players. And to to get back to the Leo Borg situation, because it's very much talked about in Sweden, or it has been over the last years since he came up and started becoming like a a, a pretty strong junior player. I mean, we we shouldn't kid anyone. He's he's not of the talent that maybe deserves this wild card. I think that is the general consensus. I mean, he gets the wild cards sadly because of his name uh, and that he has to live up to and he's not, he's not a bad player but but he has not really uh, deserved i think most of the wild cards he's received yeah it's a tough tough thing to carry he gets a lot of free chances but then when you don't get the chances based on your own merits but from your father uh, it's a little bit tricky to to manage they they write a lot about it in the swedish uh, tabloids and stuff and it's uh, it's 
pretty clear that he's not going to be like a world number one or like his father. But he, but he's he's fighting. He's trying. He seems like a good kid. But it, it's a tough one. He's 19. Uh, that's the only thing that he's he's getting older. And and nowadays it seems like you know we have a 19 year old on on quite quite high rankings and the ATP. So so it, it's tough. But you know you don't have to be that young in nowadays game. But still, I mean, he's 540 in the world, which isn't that great. There's so many good players now uh, in, in this age bracket. I mean, it's lucky he, for him he's in Sweden because the tennis in Sweden is not like thriving uh, with, with lots of good players. So on, on you know the local ATP tournament uh, like Stockholm Open, then he can get a wild card. But I mean, in other events, it would be would be quite impossible. One interesting upset alert, not related to the Swedish players, is that uh, Sitsipas, who's, who's got a wild card, is number one seed. He's playing Maxim Kasi in the in his first match. That's a tough first match when you don't have any rhythm. You're you're not like quite solid in the match play of that tournament, and then you get a guy who you're not gonna see many balls. Even you know he's gonna ace and, and run to the net. It's gonna be a, that's a very tricky first round opponent on an indoor hard court. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like we we talk about Cressy many times because he's he's so much fun to watch. Like with Cressy, it's all or nothing. There's yeah. no in between. He's not really losing badly if he loses because obviously he has a massive serve. So if he gets broken, it's gonna be a six four six four or something like that. I think Tsitsipas is a bit too too much for Cressy, but we talked about it that Tsitsipas doesn't actually have a a block return. So it might be interesting. So, um, you know, massive first and second serves over 120 miles per hour. So it's going to be a um, like a, a slaughter in terms of the service. And Cressy can usually put one or two returning game together and then there's trouble. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I do agree. I think I think Tsitsipas is a bit too strong uh, and he sort of thrives on, on these uh, first few rounds because he's just, you know, he has just too much power for these guys. Although I think if he doesn't actually like put a lot of work into his off season this year, he might be in trouble to stay in the top 10. I, I really do feel like he just somehow stalled. I don't know if you feel about it, like how you feel about it, but I feel like Tsitsipas stalled a bit. Yeah, I know. I agree. I think it's one of the strong feelings I have. And I think this year was, uh, he started pretty okay. But I think he, in the latter stages from the midpoint, I think he was pretty evident that he was not finding his game at all. And I mean, he did struggle quite a bit. And if he doesn't get out of that, because he's still a young guy, you know, and he should be winning more and reaching further in slams than he's done this year. So he needs to come in and, and perform. I think he needs a new coach. That's my personal opinion. But or at least an additional coach. I think that could be healthy. But who knows? I just realized that uh, what I wanted to talk about um, is that Murat um, Toglu joined Holger Rune's camp. Now he's going to work with Rune because um, Halep is just sort of, I don't know, whatever Halep is doing. It's fairly interesting. And, and I know that Murat Toglu has been working with Rune for uh, for quite a bit. Um, Tsitsipas and Rune, uh, to be exact. I think those were the two guys who were the main focus for Murat Toglu when he opened his academy. You know, everyone follows Muratoglu and everyone sees his uh, his little um, inputs on social media. He's like the star coach. So I don't know how good that will be for Rune because uh, he should be flying a little bit under the radar, I feel. Because if, if he will get a lot more focus, 
he can just lose it, I feel. So, you know, it, it would be better for him to to have like a coach as like, I don't know, a Piatti or someone who's who's like a really good coach, you know, puts the puts the basics down. You can just go out, you can grind. And that's the thing, like, you know, that was the problem with Kyrgios. He needed like, I don't know, six years on tour to realize that you need the grind. You need to get to these 250s. Although I don't really feel with Rune that that's the problem because he, he actually likes playing tennis and yeah. not like Kyrgios. So I don't really feel that's a problem, but I don't know. I don't necessarily think that's a good choice to go with Muratoglu because he has so much press and, and, you know, he has such a massive following. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't really feel that good about that. I think you're, I, I agree. I think it's a very good point. I think when you get a guy like this, and he's also famous in his own right for many things, uh, and I, I think it's you're gonna get the whole media bandwagon on your case that you're not performing, and it's, it's I think it can be detrimental to some players that you have such a high profile coach. He wants almost more attention than the player, so he's more of a media mogul than a coach, in my opinion so he's probably a good coach but but i think he's very good with navigating the media stuff and and the financial side of things so that's an interesting one and one thing i wanted to kind of end and discuss i think that that's pretty interesting i got some comments on my instagram because i, I re-shared something uh, is that emma raducanu is shopping for a new coach and it's been a a, a tough grind for her she's on her like fifth in a, in a not so long time and I wonder who's yeah. going to be able to help her and where she's going to feel comfortable. And, and some of the rumors I heard is like her father is quite, you know, tricky. He wants a lot more from the coach. The coaches don't really perform or she can be a bit difficult. I don't know what's true and what's not true, but it, it seems to be an issue in her game. It's, it's tough with her. It's tough with, with ladies in general. I am really friendly with uh, Funny Stolar's mom. Uh, we used to work together. And uh, Funny was a great player. Uh, and she, she still is, still? in a way. She is playing. But, you know, she's like between 400 and 500 and maybe 300 and that sort of thing. And she loses fairly early. She had lingering, lingering injuries. And, and bless her, she is... She's great. You know, she she really took advantage of her looks, which is, you know, what you have to do if, if you're not playing tennis. So, you know, you have to make some living. Mm. So I, I do get it. Um, she was talented. I mean, she was a top 100 in doubles. So she she was actually pretty good. But she had injuries and, and she she couldn't really find herself. And, and that was the same thing with her. It was really tough to find a coach. I actually helped her with um, with the racket choice and that sort of thing. I remember that because, uh, you know, Nike still has a contract with her and Wilson still has a contract with her, uh, but she's playing with an old burn, which she loves. With, with Emma, look, she had all the bandwagon, obviously, after her amazing feat of winning the U.S. from the qualies without dropping a set, which is like unheard of. I talked it. Uh, about it in one of the one of the podcasts as well is that she went with Torsenov and then she dropped Torsenov and then she came back to Torsenov and and it's like come on just make your mind up all I can say is that you need someone who you can trust and I think that should be a British coach who knows where you're coming from who knows your background who knows what you're capable of and then help somehow but it's just like bless her it's it's not going to work if you don't actually put your head down. You shouldn't post on Instagram every 15, five seconds. You should just focus on your tennis. 
because you're a talented individual you're absolutely unbelievable shots you have and 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 the whole thing is just somehow not working out now she's winning matches which is great to see but yeah well i mean she's still young she's 20 i think so she's she's still really young it's just i really wish her to find a way through all that because she needs to she needs to find a coach she cannot stay at the age of 19 20 that yeah i know what i have to do no you don't no, you need a coach like, you know, Federer can say at the age of 35 that I'm going to play a season without a coach because you won everything. She won one big tournament. But apart from that, her best result was like a quarterfinal. And I don't know, in, in Romania or in Bulgaria or whatever. And that's not a result. She got lucky. She played amazing, but she got lucky in the U.S. She had a great draw. She didn't face anyone who was who was that great and she just won it which is you know fair play to her it's great but yeah she really needs to sort it out because um it would be it would be good for the british tennis to have again um a star after murray and after after these guys who are good like you know we talked about evans and nori and and like all these guys and draper is now coming up and and he has a potential to be great i i hope so the last thing which i wanted to say before we actually say goodbye is um vienna and basel is coming up that's going to be exciting but no no roger in in basel of course but um good, <laughs> yeah. good tournaments I, i've been to vienna i haven't been to basel my friend is going to basel to watch so let me get some insight from there. I think it's the, the calm before the storm uh, this last week, because obviously after that, it's going to be smoking. Like there's going to be Vienna and Basel, which are obviously ATP 500s. And then we have the Paris Masters. And then we have the um, Turin ATP finals. And then we have the Davis Cup finals. So it's going to be a pretty nice uh, month of tennis coming up. Yeah, that, that's a great and positive note to, to end on. Thanks a lot, Dennis. Thanks for talking as usual. Yeah, I always enjoy it, you know that. So yeah, yeah, even at too. this late hour where we are. So uh, thank you very much. And um, yeah, see you next week. We will. Ciao, ciao.